0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Prisons. I'm your co host, Kim Wilson. Yesterday, Brian and I sat down with Maya Shenwar for a conversation about voting rights for prisoners, the current political landscape, and her forthcoming book. Maya is the editor in chief of Truth Out. She is also the author of Lockdown, Locked Out Why Prison Doesn't Work, and How We Can Do Better, and a co editor of the Truth Out anthology. Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. She has written about the prison industrial complex for Truthout, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, Ms. Magazine, and others. Maya lives in Chicago and organizes with the abolitionist collective Love and Protect. Before I play the episode, I'd like to say thank you to everyone that is listening to Beyond Prisons we work very hard to bring you episodes that we believe help us to think more deeply about carcerality and abolition this is important work and brian and i are excited to be creating this resource you can support beyond prisons by sharing the podcast with the people in your life and we encourage you to rate review and subscribe to beyond prisons wherever you listen to podcasts if you'd like to support us financially you can do so with a donation of one five 10 or 20 dollars per month over on our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash beyond prisons. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore prisons, on Facebook at facebook.com backslash beyond prisons podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Ready. Started so that we can really uh, spend the bulk of the hour um, addressing, you know, this, uh, this, this question, which shouldn't be a question, but it is a question. Oh, my um. God. Seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so do you yeah. want to go ahead and get started, Brian?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Maya, thank you so much for coming back on the show and for talking with us. Yeah. Um, you know this week uh like kim just said and kim and i were talking before we got on the phone with you about how you know we can't even believe that this is a conversation that needs to be had and it really is i don't want to say it's annoying but it's it's uh it's aggravating to me yeah. that this <laughs> is a conversation that we need to have um and mm-hmm. you wrote a really excellent piece in truth out sharing your thoughts on it um, it's called allowing people in prison to vote shouldn't be controversial. Um, and I couldn't agree more with that. We will link to that in the description. Um, and a lot and the, all of this stemmed from a CNN town hall that uh, Bernie Sanders was on. Um, he was asked a question, um, a very specific question about letting people in prison vote using the mm-hmm. framing of the Boston bomber and people who are convicted of sexual assault. Um, and what struck me about the question that was asked of Sanders that sparked the whole thing was how it was framed, how it seemed designed to demand a specific kind of answer. It was a dog whistle for, uh, for listeners um, right. to basically call on them, I thought, to moralize on a very basic human right of self-determination. You know, I, I thought the P, the the question conveniently disappeared the system, uh, the systematic nature mm-hmm. of disenfranchisement, the historic roots of criminalization and disenfranchisement. And in your piece, those are two things um, that you touched on. And I was wondering if you could um, maybe start with us by sharing your thoughts and your feelings on the framing of the question um, uh, and where that was going.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So... I think you're right that the question kind of, even though it was about voting rights for incarcerated people on its face, it it actually was about something else. It was about kind of fostering this type of alarmism and also kind of sensationalizing of very specific types of violence.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
2: using those specific types of violence to promote a certain mindset around punishment that actually has nothing to do with that violence itself. And we see this again and again and actually today I've I've been kind of trying to process this in the context of an article that was written in the Chicago Tribune about people being released on bond and then committing acts of sexual violence mm. after So, after, or actually committing acts of domestic violence, right? So, gender-based violence is brought up again and again as a reason for incarceration, as a reason that people should be locked up pre-trial, even though they haven't been convicted of anything yet. It's just this specter that's continually raised, and the assumption behind it when it's raised is that incarceration is actually a solution for it, you know? So it's like that assumption is there that of mm-hmm. course, you know, incarceration is how we address these things. So it's just about how rigorously we apply that solution, you know, and if we're applying it to the right people without saying like, hmm, like, okay, is incarceration actually a way to address these issues? and also why are we even talking about these issues in this context so like i thought the framing of the question was designed to kind of point point our way to a different set of questions
0: mm-hmm. which
2: are really about like how much how much are people going to pander <laughs> and right. i and it was like I was, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised by people's responses, right? Because obviously this is the norm right now is for people in prison to not be able to vote. But it was just hearing candidate after candidate either kind of step back from the question and not answer it or directly answer it by saying, no, people shouldn't be allowed to vote was, was just disheartening. And, and the thing is, it was funny because in the context of Bernie Sanders saying, yes, everyone should be allowed to vote. A few people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren kind of said, well, it's something we need to discuss. But then the next day, they were right back saying, well, no, you know, it's not really like, I think Elizabeth Warren said, I'm not there yet, which to me was a very telling. Mm-hmm. Very telling answer, because it's like, well, what do you mean by yet? Are you saying that, like, not enough progress has happened for you to be able to say yes, because you're afraid of, like, being ahead of the public consensus, mm-hmm. you know? And and I thought, you know, Kamala Harris, of course, said, I'm a prosecutor, you know? <laughs> of course right. I believe that people should be punished cruelly and their rights should be taken away. And then you had like Beto O'Rourke saying, well, and I think this comes back to the framing of the question, well, you know, people who are convicted of nonviolent crimes should should be able to vote, which then again raises that question of like, why, like since when are voting rights contingent on what a person has done? Like right. what, what acts a person has carried out in their lives? Like, Where did that come from? And I I think it comes to this, I I think like a really misplaced concern around violence that just gets completely away from the actual causes of violence and the ways that violence is perpetuated in our society, including through policing and prison.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I have a lot of thoughts around this, um, and I appreciate um, everything, you know, you just said, uh, both you and Brian, I, I think the three of us uh, published something, you know, uh, regarding uh, <laughs> the conversation uh, mm-hmm. around the same time. So I think within, you know, days um, of each other, um, and I think, my you mm-hmm. and I actually published within hours of each other, um, yeah you know, the, and it was just, you know, it, it was obviously on our minds. Um, we had yes. been thinking about this and this is an issue, uh, that I'd been thinking about, you know, this is where I began, um, my doctoral research many, many years ago when I was a baby academic. Um, and, uh, you know, the, a couple of things came up for me as I was listening and went back and and read both of your pieces. Um, One, you know, this is really appealing to the carceral feminists out there, right? So it's like, oh, we're, you know, um, we're going to protect women uh, and the criminal justice system is the way to protect women, right? So this wasn't really about voting rights, but it was about reassuring or signaling to particular groups of people and not all women uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, they would be, quote unquote, protected, right? Um, so that was the first thing that that came up for me. The other thing that came up for me was um, that, you know, the question around sexual assault was really kind of missing the point because sexual assault is not limited to, you know, women victims, right? So mm-hmm. it leaves out, you know, many other groups of people who are victims of sexual assault. Right. So as you said, you know, in the beginning that um, this was designed to perhaps raise a certain set of questions. But I'm, I might argue uh, that it was designed to shut down conversation and to say that mm-hmm. there really shouldn't be a debate about this. Um, on the one side, you know, there are uh, the good conservative folks, uh, and that includes liberal folks who feel like, you know, this is going way too far. Um, And then on the other side, we have, you know, abolitionists who have been out in front of this issue saying, well, this is a no brainer. Like, of course, people in prison should have the right to vote. Um, But the other thing that came up was that um, it also had or the responses from all of the candidates Uh, who spoke on this, had nothing to say about what is or is not happening in prisons to help people that have harmed address those behaviors as well as their thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So it leaves the culture of sexual assault and sexual violence completely intact. It has nothing to say Mm -hmm. about that at the individual level, and it certainly has nothing to say in terms of the responsibility of the criminal punishment system to actually help rehabilitate people, right? Mm -hmm. So there was just, I found it really frustrating, and these are people who are going to be, quote-unquote, leaders of the free world, right? And they have no framework. From which to evaluate or really interrogate this issue, right? Like they could not break it down in those ways, right? Um, and I think that you know, your point about um Harris and, and her response, I mean, all of your points about each of their individual response, um really left you know, much to be desired. I mean, honestly, there's not a single candidate, Bernie included, that I feel is it, it can get my vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> none of right. them have said anything that, you know, I feel is, you know, is going to benefit me or people like me or people in my mm-hmm. community, right? Um And, you know, Harris, I mean, she, she comes off really flippant, um, about a lot of these things. Well, I'm a prosecutor, of course, you know, so, okay. So your past practices, you know, uh, actions around this are, you know, are trash and you're signaling that your future practices around this are going to be trash as well. Right. As you know, what, a week ago or two (laughs) weeks ago, she was talking about people re-entering and perhaps, you know, getting jobs in the marijuana industry in California. And I'm like, okay, you need to get clear about your politics. Like, you really need to get clear, Kamala, about what side you're actually on because you're talking out of both sides of your face at this point, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, to acknowledge that there are six million disenfranchised people in this country and to kind of take that lightly, <sighs> to take that
1: likely as
0: someone running yes. for president is breathtaking. And that should completely disqualify you right there.
1: Agree. Yeah.
0: You know, um, well, I'm sorry. Yeah.
2: Oh, no, I completely agree. And I feel like like you said, these are people who are running to be quote unquote president of the free world. And I think that they actually don't see themselves as people who will be president also of people who are incarcerated.
1: They Mm -hmm. just don't
2: see them as part of their constituency, not just because they won't be voting for them, but because they're not thinking about them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, so the idea of representation is like, yeah, they can afford to be flippant, partially because, you know, people won't be voting for them, but also because it's just, it's not on, I think, most of their radar, aside from like maybe a small set of talking points that they can pull out if a question ever comes up. And this question, I I don't think any of them were really expecting. And so the answers that came up were... Like not not a set of very clear talking points, and maybe that's part of the reason that they drew so much attention, but aside from the fact that this is you know kind of an unusual question to come up on the national stage, mm-hmm. but I think yeah, you know they're they're not seeing people in prisons as their constituents, and I think it kind of it goes to a larger issue with people running for president in general that they're not seeing a lot of marginalized people as their constituents. And, and it's like, I was thinking about this just in the context of voting rights. And one thing that came up for me was, you know, on top of the 6 million people who were incarcerated, who were um, disenfranchised because they're incarcerated or had a felony conviction in, a, in the last election, you also have around 11 million people who are undocumented who don't have Mm -hmm. papers Mm -hmm. who can't vote and it's like this is another group of people that you know there's a set of talking points there are certain things that seem to be over the line you know thinking about family separation and and these types of kind of hot button issues that come up and then people feel they have to say something but when you get down to the idea of borders and the violence they're perpetuating and that type of thing, then it's like, you pull back, you know, so I I think like voting, voting illuminates some of these larger issues and the issue of incarcerated people voting illuminates kind of this larger disregard for a lot of different groups of marginalized people.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just touching on some of the things you said there in particular about these being talking points and about the candidates lacking depth. I think, you know, we are really seeing now the impact of several years of, you know, a, a sort of elite criminal justice establishment movement uh, that has been perpetuating that or, or peddling this dichotomy of violent and nonviolent, right. Um, as yeah. sort of this like bright dividing line. And I mean, it was really troubling to me. I mean, we've seen it come up in other places in, in federal legislation and, and so on and so forth on state and local level, but to see sort of not only the embrace of it by the candidates, but then the defense of that position by a lot of people who would even consider themselves to be sort of liberal or, who perceive themselves as having empathy or anything like that. It was just shocking to see, you know, to me, the level to which that's penetrated. And I really, I'm I'm really concerned about that, you know, um, Yeah. Just, just in terms of like getting people to think through these issues. I think that has done a lot more damage than, uh, you know, what these organizations were, I guess, bargaining or gambling that it would, uh, or maybe they were fine with it. They probably were. Um, but... You know the the other thing too uh, that comes up, that comes up from this uh, conversation and something I was saying to Kim earlier as well is about how this sort of feeds into sort of this historical idea and the way that we think about voting in this country, even if we talk about it as a right, but you know, mm-hmm. treating it like an opportunity. It's, uh, right. you know, we talk about a groomed electorate. Um, I know, Kim, this is something, you know, if you want to 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 chime in on this, I know this is something you've focused on in your work um, and probably have like a lot more depth to say on it than I do. But, you know, it just strikes me how sort of cavalier people are about this idea that like, well, only the most pious among us should vote because it's sort of this ritual that we engage in to show like how, you know, virtuous our democracy is. And so there's certain people that, you know, we can't allow to vote so that they don't pervert the polls. You know, I, I saw some people on social media, um, lumping in disabled folks in, in that sort of rhetoric. Yeah, um, yeah. and so I wondered, you know, getting back in particular to the nonviolent and violent dichotomy, if you could talk a little bit about that and and how you touched on it in your piece. Um, And and yeah, that's my question.
2: Yeah, definitely. So, right, I think that this idea of determining who will vote based on some sort of test, whether it be moral or some other type of test is obviously really, really dangerous and terrifying. Um, And, and I think we can look at this a few different ways. One one way is historically. And Kim, I know you've done a lot of work on this, and you can definitely add more. But um, I'm hearing a lot of people, like you know, I, quote unquote, on our side, people who are who are talking about this issue, talking about how mm-hmm. you know, uh, why can't we be like Europe, where people vote while they're incarcerated, which is You know, absolutely what we should be doing. And this open letter came out on this topic, I think, yesterday from a number of groups that was talking about Germany and how rights of citizenship are granted to incarcerated people. They're earning wages that are on par with the rest of the workforce. But obviously, in the United States, the criminal legal system is grounded in a a totally different historical reality than Europe. And like a lot of the more brutal aspects of the system, felony disenfranchisement laws got more popular in the United States after black men were granted the right to vote. And they were used as a tool to suppress voting and political representation for black communities. And I think we think of this being something that happened like in specific places, like it only happened in the South after slavery. But this because this has been happening for a while, like prior to that, Northern states were already suppressing the black vote. Like I think New Jersey um, prohibited people. I, I know the prohibition on people with criminal convictions, voting happened like nearly simultaneously from with the year that they constitutionalized restricting the vote to I think just white men. So mm-hmm. there's been like this stuff has been entangled and happening in the United States for a long time like this restriction of the vote at the same time as we talk about the vote being this universal right. And so there's there's always those dynamics at play. And then we we add in this like violent nonviolent. So on the one hand you're thinking about like okay, like, violent people include all these groups of people that, like, people want to throw away anyway, if that makes sense, like, even people on the left, and so, so for me, and, and this is, this is, like, a really complicated topic right now, I think, because of me, too, but it's, it's something that we really need to deeply engage with, so Kim brought up carceral feminism, and I think that that this is a time when we can't have conversations around sexual violence without kind of addressing that issue of carceral feminism, and this is a perfect example of why. So, and I've, I've heard actually more often this question coming up in regard to sexual violence lately. So it used to be you would break down nonviolent and violent people in prison you know when when this question came up of who should who should get rights in prison and who should get reduced time in prison and who who we should sympathize with basically and I used to more hear the question in regards to murder and and yeah like murder was I think the big one and now because of the me too movement i think and because more people are talking openly about sexual violence and there's a culture more of encouraging survivors to speak out very rightly obviously there's there's been kind of this emphasis on that as the exception and i think that's very dangerous for a couple of reasons one of them is like questions like actual human rights and civil rights are not supposed to be contingent on what someone has done. So when we talk about voting rights, and we we put that kind of test in place, it's, it's along the lines of, you know, any other kind of test you might apply to voting where you're saying, okay, like this person has to get by, by this standard in order to have this basic civil right. So then... What does that mean for, for all the rest of our civil rights? So there's that, and then, and then there's another layer to, to that, which is we're not talking about who has actually committed sexual violence. We're not talking about who has actually done something violent in their lives, which is really you know a lot of the people in this country, of course. We're talking about who has been convicted of a crime under the law, right and so of course there. then you get into the fact that certain people are much much more likely to be targeted when it comes to certain offenses and to be policed and that's very heavily racialized and it has to do with class and it has to do with ability and so so all of those things come into play and for me as someone who does work at the intersection of incarceration and violence and and looked at the issue of sexual violence quite frequently as part of my work with love and protect i and also some of the work i'm doing on this this book i'm working on right now it really it pains me on multiple levels because it means that if we're asking this question we're not examining at all the roots of sexual violence we're not examining at all the issues to actually like reduce violence in a fundamental way, and we're not shifting the culture. You know, we're we're still saying, okay, the way to deal is to apply this punishment that actually is is quite violent itself, and so so yeah, I I think that. I, and I feel like a, a broken record or whatever the current form of that analogy is, but <laughs> but I just feel like I I say again and again, prison is a form of sexual violence mm-hmm. and it is like sexual violence is built into the practices of prison. It's built into its foundation and, you know, things, things that happen in prison, it, it's not just about more violence happening in prison which is true, a lot of it is perpetrated by guards and authorities. But it's also that things that happen in prisons that are just sanctioned, you know, are would be considered sexual violence on the outside, including strip searches, and different things that happen in relation to solitary confinement, when someone is allowed to wear their clothes or not, you know, so I think that, that we have to I think, keep saying that no matter how repetitive it sounds, because to me, that, that question kind of like derails this debate in a way that's really important. Like the debate is not about whether we need to do something about sexual violence or not do something about sexual violence and the do something has to do with prison. It's like, I believe that in order to actually address violence in any kind of root way, prison needs to
0: be taken off the table. Agreed. 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 Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, going back um a little bit, I think uh the point that you were making earlier, I'd like to um touch on that as well. You know, the I and that was the idea that these things um, are historically rooted, right? So they're historically rooted, but there's also the race and gender component, which we can't, you know, divorce or decouple mm-hmm. from uh, from the analysis. And this is this is what I find really, really um, irritating uh, about, you know, the the entire conversation. I also think that, you know, it should be part of the national conversation. I, uh, you know, we have seen, uh, not just with what happened in Florida, but also with the national prison strike, um, the way Mm -hmm. that prisoners have been out in front uh, talking about voting rights as well as other human rights issues uh, that they're experiencing in prison, but also once they get out. So I see this as, of course, this should be part of, you know, and I'm not arguing or saying that you, that's not what you're saying, but um, I, I wasn't, I was more an annoyed, pissed off, frankly, um, by the framing of the question, because it was not, it, it wasn't a genuine question, right? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. you know, Brian said um, already, it was, you know, it was a dog whistle, Um but if we go back to you know this sense that um, or the notion that this is historically rooted and there's uh, racial and uh, gender components to this, you know when we think about sexual crimes, sexual crimes committed by black people against white women resulted in death or castration, right? That was the punishment, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that was a way to preserve, you know, and still is in a lot of ways a way to preserve white supremacy. That's also not coming up um, for a lot of folks in this conversation, right? Even, even the, you know, well-meaning people who want to chime in and make the case that, you know, um, that people in prison should have voting rights. Um, But it also has nothing to say about, you know, sexual assault against um, Black women, women of color, trans Mm -hmm. women, um, and what have you. And, or, the historical, you know, ties to the way, you know, white men um, were usually unpunished if they committed sexual violence right. against black And people. still are. And yeah. still are, yeah. right? So, you know, there's nothing, I, I'm not seeing that come up in any of this conversation. Um, but, you know, this also took me back. I told Brian, I said, I went back and started digging up documents from like 10 years ago and things that I had written. Um, and one of the things that, you know, uh, came up was this, you know, notion that, and this is before, you know, Black people got the right to vote. And we're looking at, you know, the Voting, voting Rights Act of 1965, but um, really during Reconstruction, Black people were arbitrarily subject to the criminal justice system right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of the old forms of you know preserving white supremacy under slavery remained intact and as they were developing new forms of punishing you know black people right so you know when people talk about the link between incarceration today and the you know and how that's tied to slavery there i mean there's we can draw a through line we can connect dots there's a thread mm-hmm there um that goes directly back to what's going on. But um the other thing that you know it made me think of uh and I couldn't find this in, in um my my writing so I just kind of jotted down some some notes um was the idea that um this is part of uh the, the oh, sorry that the way that this is being deployed today, right? So disenfranchisement, incarceration in general, but particularly things like disenfranchisement, um, that black people function better under these systems that are oppressive, right? That they're not allowed or entitled to think for themselves. Um, They have no right to self-determination. They should not be allowed to pretty much operate in society, right? Even though you know a lot of people mm-hmm. like to call or refer to people coming out of prison as quote unquote returning citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Phrase which really, you know, um irritates me. But yeah, it's it, it's this, you know, notion that under the supervision and surveillance of you know the carceral state, that we're going to not only deprive people of their freedom, but any chance that they might have at life outside of those walls, because they're always going to be marked as criminal, right? And Mm -hmm. that any kind of punishment um, or what, you know, in in public policy circles is referred to as, you know, collateral consequences, which is a very nice term Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of really fucked up racist stuff. Um, Mm Right is okay you know and uh the one the one thing that i did um dig up that i wanted to share with both of you uh is a quote that i included in uh i think i'm this made it into the final draft of my dissertation but it comes from uh the work of um Melly and Miller, Teresa Miller, and uh, Christopher Melly, uh, who wrote a book called Civil, Penalty, civil Penalties Social Consequences. Um, and they said, you know, when certain collateral civil penalties bear little or no relation to a criminal act, either in kind or severity, it is no longer tenable to consider them simply civil consequences of mm-hmm. criminal conviction. In the current period, multiple and compounding collateral civil penalties, denial of welfare benefits, federal student aid, subsidized housing, among others, follow conviction for certain kinds of felonies, such as drug possessions or sales. They function to continue criminal punishment already heightened by federal sentencing guidelines and mandatory sentencing requirements in civil form, right? And I go on from there, but, you know, that quote really kind Mm -hmm. of stood out to me because these yeah. things really have nothing to do with whatever your quote unquote crime was, right? right. So right. it's like yeah. we're not gonna allow you to vote because you know you sold crack. And it's like those right. things have nothing to do with each other. Um you're not allowed to vote because under three strikes, you know, you are in prison and You know, it doesn't matter what act you committed, but then we have to go back to, you know, the point that you made about distinguishing between, you know, violent and nonviolent offenders really doesn't make sense unless you're trying to preserve the the state of the, you know, preserve the status quo, and I'll put it that way. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in essence, for me, the question that, arises um, from all of this is you know uh, and I think this is a very kind of deep philosophical question but I think that we can uh, talk about it in terms of you know everything that has come up but who gets to be human in this society right Right? like really who gets to be human Mm
2: -hmm. yeah so first of all Kim I never say this to anyone, but I kind of want to read your dissertation.
0: <laughs> it sounds, it sounds
2: <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> like I'm bad at reading academic writing, but I wanna I wanna try to read your dissertation because it sounds so interesting. And I think that right this question of who gets to be human and how how much our criminal punishment system is about targeting people and depriving people of humanity, rather than this idea of consequences, like punishment and consequences are, are very different things. And as you were, yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, what would depriving someone of the vote be a consequence for? Like, what would you need to do that the natural consequence, would be not voting and i i mean i don't I don't think it would be an effective consequence for anything, but there are a very, very small number of things that I can think of it being you know any kind of consequence for, and none of them have to do with violence
1: mm-hmm. you know
2: it's like yeah, I don't know, I guess they would they would be voting crimes, whatever that. Yeah. Like, like the fictional voter fraud that is,
0: like yeah, always yeah. But I mean, out. I think that goes back to you know what uh, Brian was saying earlier about you know this notion of you know preserving the purity of the ballot, right? Yes. right. Which, you know, basically, right. it's like you know we put these laws in place to make sure that you know, that we can preserve our democracy, whatever the hell that right. is. Right? right. So I, I think exactly. that, you know, there's, um, a lack of interrogating, you know, these ideas and people are just parroting bullshit that they hear other people say, because it sounds good. Um, or maybe it just resonates with the people that they needed to resonate with, whatever, you know, and not just yeah. their base, but I think it expands, you know, or extends beyond their base to other people who would be sympathetic to what they think is the quote unquote right position, right? Mm-hmm. To be on the right side mm-hmm. of this issue is to be, right. it, it, to say, we need to severely punish anyone that's in prison, right? Even if there were, uh, there past histories um have nothing to do with you know voter fraud right i mean mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough the people who are committing voter fraud are not people who you know are going to prison right exactly <laughs> like, <laughs> right people who are you know doing all kinds of backflips and gerrymandering and all kinds of you know purging right. roles and all of that stuff um those people are not going to prison so when you start to break this down and analyze this in terms of what is actually happening here versus, you know, going through all of the noise and the nonsense, um, that people are spewing out there. Uh, it just, you start to, I think, get a very different picture, but that again requires doing a little bit of work that I don't think most people are willing to do. A lot of, the responses. I mean, they, all of the candidates came off as, you know, reactionary as far as I'm concerned. They had yeah little or nothing to say. Super um, reactionary. That, that has any depth that would elevate the conversation. And, you know, um yeah, like it, it just, it, it just didn't. I mean, the, the whole, um who was it uh oh god there was someone who said um, that this was i think they said it was like a natural consequence or something right right uh, you know but it is, yeah who was it yeah. um
1: People i think judge.
0: it was that yeah luck, okay yeah. That, it, yeah and uh, again like i've been i've been i've been following it but i'm not like So consumed by it. One, because it's too fucking early as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. Seriously. Seriously. Pay attention to all of the bullshit that every one of these candidates has to say. And you know, they're not gonna be there anyway. So it's like um but you know that what what that brought up for me was that, you know, um, the idea that, you know, prison is the punishment, right? And that this person has a very, very limited understanding of how difficult and, you know, just God awful being in prison actually is. So adding Mm -hmm. other things, other punishments on top of that reveals something about what they think of people in prison. Right. But it also says that, um, you know, for me, and this is going in a very lofty kind of, you know, America thinks of itself as the land of second chances. I mean, one of your <laughs> candidates actually, you know, talked about, you know, or, uh, champion the bill, you know, on uh, the second chance act and what have you. Right. So, you know, right. rhetorically, I think there's, people are paying a nod to these things without actually believing them or wanting them to come to fruition. Right. So it might be, okay, this, this makes me look progressive or it makes me look liberal or whatever you want to look like, um, that's going to benefit you. But on the ground, in practice, I don't think that there's a genuine interest in making making this happen, right? Because a lot of people don't care about people in prison, even though the conversation, I feel, has shifted. Um, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, 10 years ago, we were having a very different conversation around mass incarceration than we are today. And a lot of the voices Mm -hmm. that are really prominent today, not just in terms, you know, not in terms of like criminal justice reform, but, you know, going even further in terms of, you know, abolition. um, Mm -hmm. I think abolitionists are rightfully taking up a lot of space and we should, right? But yeah. we're I mean, we we're like twenty five years behind in terms of doing the kind of cultural work that reformers and other folks have been doing, you know, where people mm-hmm. just kind of take these ideas for granted and don't even question it. Like you know, it, it just yeah, so I don't know. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, and I think it's you're right that there's there's kind of the envelope has been pushed a little bit. So it's like now, for example, the line on disenfranchisement for people who've been released from prison is, is different. Like among liberals, that's something you're supposed to be against is that kind of disenfranchisement. But of course, like the line, the line goes that, well, that kind of disenfranchisement goes against who we are as a country and goes against our national character. And I think that, like, among us, among abolitionists, we understand that actually that kind of disenfranchisement is a real reflection of what this country is and what it was built on. And it was built on slavery. It was built on colonialism and genocide and actual attempts to dehumanize and erase and mass murder human beings. You know, that's who who we are as a country so so i think that right like the the conversation is limited and and i think i agree that i wasn't actually impressed with any of the candidates because all of them have to keep coming back to this idea of like matching the ideals of who we are as a country and lining up with you know our democracy And, you know, what it was meant to be, whereas I think in order to get beyond that and in order to get to abolition, you have to recognize that the roots are rotten. You know, you have to recognize that these institutions and not just the prison, but also the country were built on white supremacy, you know, and were built on colonialism and, like, different forms of economic injustice and, and all of those things. So, so for me, right, I mean, the, the presidential debate, or, you know, the endless primary season, like, those debates are so narrow, I think, in part, because there is this assumption that you have to buy in, you know, to this idea that there are these lofty ideals that the united states was built on and there are these promises that that need to be fulfilled rather than the abolitionist way that that all of us have been talking about which is kind of a radical reimagination you
1: know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean even just in addition to that to to all that brilliant um all the brilliant things you both just said, I, I can't get past for me, like on a practical level, what, what do you get out of creating a class of people who are constituent on, to no one, who have, who have no constituency? Not, I'm not even just talking about, you know, access to the ballot box. I mean, I, you know, I have complicated feelings on voting. I don't think it's a, a panacea. I also think it's important. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people should have access to the ballot box. But I mean, like you were saying earlier in the conversation, it's not just that kind of disenfranchisement. It's also like, these are not people who these politicians feel like they even have to answer to, you know, or or their needs and their concerns and their, you know, all of that is just not even on the radar. Um, And I just, you know, and then we, we turn around and wonder, you know, how these communities, you know, fall apart and how there's so much misery on the ground when we have completely deprived like generations of of families and communities from political representation and from like any semblance of power. I just, you know, like I just, it's, it's baffling to me, like why, what you would even think is the, is like a positive material outcome of, of that policy, you know?
0: Oh. Uh, we need, we need to bring over the folks from millennials are killing capitalism, um, for, for this next part of the the conversation, because I think that you can't, in order to have a robust analysis of this issue, you also have to understand the way capitalism functions, right? And that incarceration is highly profitable. Um, and Mm -hmm. the, you know, targeting surveillance and management of certain groups of people in their own communities um, Mm -hmm. is profitable. uh, And that we take those things for granted, as long as, you know, we continue to have people who are in the public sphere, um, stoking, you know, the kind of deep resentment and fears that they always have, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not if you're not in those targeted groups, or you know your community is not surveilled um and policed, you you're good. like you're good. You probably have no fucks to give on this mm-hmm. issue, right? Like you could care less about what's happening um you know over there., uh, so I think that you know the but something else that you know you talked about it, and I don't think it's unique. To where we are, um, you know, geographically in this country, uh, this is something that is historically rooted as well. Is that you know the unequal application of citizenship has been around since the dawn of time, right? So mm-hmm. the idea that you know um, at least since you know the Roman era, if not before, then, um, but the idea that certain people get to be citizens um, and mm-hmm. enjoy the full benefits of whatever you know citizenship. Is um, And it, there are a lot of other people who don't get to participate in that process. And we've come to a place in this country where, you know, and, and we've been at that place. I don't think that that's new. The, the new radical kind of thinking, and I don't see it as radical at all, is um, is, you know, to push back against those ideas and to say, you know, we should all have the right to vote, you know, for here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, I mean, just, you know, let's let's just break it down a different way. Right. Because I can go on the academic line, you know, and and just talk about that ad nauseum. Um, but I think that, you know, when you think about being incarcerated, right, and losing pretty much all of your rights in a lot of states, you don't even have to be informed that you mm-hmm. lost those rights. right? And there's yeah. no mechanism, you know, through which, and I think it's only a handful of states, or at least it was when I was looking at this a long time ago, um, that were requiring, you know, someone somewhere along the process to actually inform prisoners who were leaving, you know, um, who were about to be released, how they, you know, that they had lost those rights, but how they might go about getting them restored, right? So there is, you know, yeah. it's just, On top of all the other bullshit you got to deal with when you go to prison, this is another one of those things that really makes absolute zero sense. Right. Mm. And then we talk about, well, what happens to communities and, you know, people are reintegrating. I mean. You know, if I were to rewrite my dissertation today, um, I I think it would probably be much shorter. And I'd probably say, well, reentry is bullshit. There's the short, there's my thesis. (laughs) Reentry is bullshit because we're, (laughs) because of a lot of different reasons, but you know, the idea that you're coming back and you're going to return to your community. But we also know, and most of us can recite this without, thinking about it that, you know, 67% of people return to prison within three years, right? Not for right. committing a new quote-unquote crime, but because of a violation of probation, right? Mm-hmm. So right. if we wanted to end recidivism, we could just not send people to prison for silly shit.
2: How about yep. that? Right?
0: Like, right. that's <laughs> one quick way to just end recidivism <laughs> right there, but... Also, you know, charging people to restore their voting rights, or as in the case of Delaware, at least this was the case in Delaware um, years ago, and it it may still be the case. I haven't checked. Um, You had to wait, I believe it was five years after you were um, released from prison uh, before you could apply to get the right to vote restored. And then you had to make sure that, you know, all of your fines and fees, um, had also been paid off. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, if you think about the people who are being targeted for this kind of management, which is basically what it is by the state, um, and state, you know, thinking large sense, not necessarily right. in, States, as in Delaware, Pennsylvania, what have you. um, That has a significant impact on, you know, who gets voted into office, right? And I think that that starts to get at something else. And that's not conspiracy theory. We have numbers, we can look at the numbers. um, And we can look at patterns of the kind of disenfranchisement that has occurred in a lot of places. I know I looked at Delaware many, many years ago, and one of the things that stood out to me at the time uh, was that most of the people that were in Delaware state prisons were coming from five zip codes in the city of Wilmington, right? right? So the city of Wilmington is primarily black, Right. And about 3,000 people were being released back to their communities every year, right? 3,000 people every year that had lost the right to vote, right? Mm -hmm. And would have to go through ridiculous obstacles to have those voting rights, you know, reinstated. When you're looking at the range of things that people have to deal with when they're coming out, voting doesn't rank at the top. I'll put it that way. Exactly, It's right. like you have to figure out how to not catch another, you know, a, a violation of probation, a, a VOP, so that you don't get sent back to prison. You have to figure out how you can, you know, look for work. You have to, you know, all of these things that are happening in order to make you completely insecure, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like voting should be like, it, this should be a no-brainer. Like, this should be like, okay, People have the right to vote. They should never lose the right to vote. I mean, it's like, unless you're out there, like, I don't know, I, it, like Maya, I'm I'm hard pressed to imagine a yeah. situation where, That's Maya, there is <laughs> where someone should lose the right to vote. And when people say, well, terrorists, and, you know, the, the and this is, you know, um. kind of nitpicky um, or maybe not. But you know they they used the Boston bomber and I'm like, were they even like U.S. citizens? Like, and not, and I'm not arguing that you know that undocumented people. And I don't think they were undocumented; they had green cards. Um, I'm not arguing that people with green cards shouldn't be allowed to vote. But I'm just saying that you're asking a question and you're making an argument that's asinine, and right. that we can show with facts, actual facts, that what you're saying is bullshit, and it, like we're not actually calling these people out, right? Like we're not calling them out for this kind of, you know, nonsense. And I 100% agree with, you know, what Maya said about um, undocumented people having the right to vote. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just, oh my God. I mean, I just came from, from LA and, you know, after being out there for almost four years and People are paying taxes, they're do contributing yeah. to their communities, they're doing all sorts of things that, you know, um, Jesus, like, if you don't have the right to vote, like,
2: really? Right, right. Well, huh. it's, yeah, I mean, I think that comes down to a question, which is like, what is voting about? Voting is, at least in part, about having a say in what happens to you. And policy, public policy, affects some people more than others, right? And it especially has has an impact on marginalized and targeted populations. And, you know, we should all have much more of a say in what happens to us. But I think it especially applies to people in prison. It especially applies to undocumented people people who have so little say in what happens to them, you know, like people in prison don't have a say over their daily movements. A lot of times, you know, when they're going to eat, what they're going to eat, who they're going to associate with and not associate. When with. When they can pee, I, when they
0: can poop. Exactly. When they can, exactly. when they can right. go to the doctor, all of those things. Like it just, right. yeah. Right. So
2: it's like, so in In a case like this, when the state has so much control over your life, and in the case of someone who's an undocumented immigrant, like the state is deciding, you know whether you get to live in many times your home, you know, or whether you can live in a place where you've come after fleeing horrific violence or not. And so the who gets elected has this massive, massive, massive impact on your life, you know? So if you're deciding who has the right to vote, it's almost like depriving people most impacted by the actions of the state of having a say in what happens to them. I I think it's, you know, this this massive contradiction.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Um, right. I'm, I'm really grateful <laughs> you know, for this conversation. I mean, take, like, a quick
0: right there,
1: you know. Yeah. Well, there's a, know. in every episode we have that like sigh moment mm-hmm. where it's been silent for a minute. Um, but I mean, we we only have a couple minutes here. Um, Kim, I don't know if you have another question that you wanted to get in. I have another one. Um, but I want to be respectful of Maya's time, so I'll let you choose. Did you have a question?
0: Um, um i mean i think that you know we covered a lot of ground and you know i just uh i mean i would just ask maya to you know if there's anything else that she would like to you know uh discuss um or yeah. that
1: and we tell us about your book
0: that we haven't already oh, you know touched on yeah well i guess right i could say
2: something about my book that's coming up because it I think it relates to a lot of the things we've been talking about which are that when we talk about issues of incarceration we're not just talking about people confined in a certain state we're talking about the issue of control and who gets controlled and how they're controlled and who gets to control them and so it's the the book that I'm working on Right now, with Victoria Law, is about all the expansions of the prison industrial complex beyond the walls of the prison. And so, we're talking about electronic monitoring, probation, parole, um, psych hospitals, drug courts. We're talking about the sex offender registry. We talk about you know. The, the kind of fear-mongering that is happening in this, in this conversation um, around sexual assault, here's another solution. In addition to depriving people of vote, you can put someone on a registry that does absolutely nothing besides make you know, their lives impossible. We're talking about other forms of control like the foster care system, child protective services, the ways in which families are torn apart, by, by these different types of state violence. And we're also, we're also kind of showing how all of these systems are linked and how if you're, if you're talking about prison reform, but you're not talking about these other systems of control, then we really risk implementing reforms that are then going to widen the net and expand the number of people and the number of ways that that people are confined and controlled and policed. So obviously it is a very uplifting book. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, important work actually, though. Well, thank you. Well, we actually do have a very long final chapter, which is about solutions. And it's been really inspiring me lately. Now we're in kind of the editing phase just going back over some of the interviews that we did for that chapter, because they really are about thinking beyond these mechanisms of control. So a lot of the things we're talking about in our book are things that people have proposed as alternatives, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are saying, oh, we should reduce incarceration are saying, well, we should expand electronic monitoring, or we should actually be sending all these people that we have diagnosed as mentally ill who are in prison, we should be sending them to psychiatric hospitals where the doors are, are also All prisons, right? You know,
0: right. exactly. By name, right, yeah.
2: Exactly, prison by another name. So, so, in order to think beyond those alternatives, you really, you have to start, on the baseline again and say, okay, like what would a system look like that actually deals with problems and doesn't doesn't do it in a way that is about control. You know, and that's that's a hard question to ask, but it's also one that I think is really necessary at a time when when more people are actually open to talking about reform. Now, one of, the, one of the sections in that final chapter, the subhead, which I'm really proud of, is just nothing, it's called nothing. And that's because there are so many things that people are incarcerated for that actually there doesn't need to be another quote unquote solution. It's like nothing needs to happen as a result of that. It's just they've been incarcerated because a certain thing has been criminalized that isn't actually a problem you know so it's really we're we're trying to think through like how 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 to intervene in this conversation in a way that that helps ensure that the reforms that happen over the next few years are not simply going to rebuild the system in a different image so We'll see, we'll see. The editing is, is rough, but um, we're getting there.
1: I can't wait to read it. Um, was it,
0: when, when you said, uh, you know, Beyond the Prison Walls, that's actually the title of my dissertation. Um, wow. It's, it's actually <laughs> called Beyond the Prison Walls, right? Wow. And mm-hmm. I use a, a Du Boisian analysis to, you know, uh, interrogate and uh, consider you know reentry and all of its tentacles um, yeah. you know, uh, around surveillance and things like you know uh, GIS mapping of communities and what have you mm-hmm. uh, which I think you know were are deeply problematic I mean in in, in an earlier version yeah. and I think this relates or is relevant to something you said um, you know I looked at the the myths that Americans like to tell about themselves, you know, so what's the story about mm-hmm. America, right, as this land right. opportunity and its place, and, you know, really deeply yeah. interrogating where these things come from, because I think people just take it for granted. And like I said earlier, people just parrot things that, you know, they hear from other places without ever really thinking, you know, beyond kind of like a very surface level, you know, Way Um, and having an understanding of, you know, um, not just the history, but I think the um, the theoretical frameworks that inform these things like, you know, positivism, um, scientism, you know, is uh, (laughs) is important so that right. you know we're not just scratching our heads trying to figure out well what's happening now well people have right. been thinking about this for a very very long time um yeah. and it's no wonder that i got the response that i got you know when i first proposed this way 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 back when um yeah. and you know people balked and they were like well you can't really write about this this isn't you know um. It, this is not really important. This is not what public policy oh. people do, even though that's not what they've really said. What they said was you know you will not do this in a public policy context um mm. that they, you mm-hmm. know belong perhaps in um in a different you know in a different discipline um or, wow. or area of study, so you know looking at it now, um yeah, i mean the you know these ideas. Um, come from somewhere and I think that's also part of the kind of work that as abolitionists we need to do more of I think we do some of this um, but those ideas have not really filtered out into you know um, many spaces and I think Mm -hmm. it's important to you know to to call those things out when they're coming up in conversation to point out what's problematic with this and not just regurgitate whatever the person you know candidate said um as a you know like i i just it's so exhausting i don't know what else to say It is. It is.
2: <laughs> i well you know i was thinking i was thinking when you were talking about reentry um So a couple years ago, like right before the twenty sixteen election, my sister was getting out of prison. She was asking and she's she's spent so much time in jail and prison over the past few years, she just never had been out for an election, I guess. And she was like she was like, Wait, so I can't vote, right? And, you know, she was going to get out in time. And mm-hmm. in Illinois, you actually can vote. Like, it's one of the states where, you know, your right to vote is automatically restored. And I was like, oh, no, of course you can vote. You can definitely do that. So she was like, oh, well, everyone in prison says you can't vote when you out. <laughs> and this is in Illinois, you mm. know, and and it mm-hmm. was it really brought to light kind of this idea of civil death is not just about policies, of course a large part of it is policies, but it's also, right, like this stuff seeps into the culture and people are told things about themselves and just kind of put in a position where it becomes assumed that they are, that their rights are gone. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to do on multiple levels. Yeah. Really extending yeah. out some laws. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, your the thing about your sister reminded me of um, something else that I, I touched on. Um, and I'll just do this quickly. But, um, you know, this idea that incarcerated people um, are not political, right? And that right. they're... You know, and, and there's an attitude that they're not political or that they should not be political, um, which really it, like undermines their agency. Right. And it mm-hmm. says that yeah. they're not they're not thinking, they're not absorbing. I mean, it, some of the more sophisticated political arguments and analyses of, you know, current, problems, um, are, for me, at least, are coming from people who are on the inside, right? And yes, it's like, exactly. they, they have the time to think through these issues. I mean, geez, has anybody read or listened to Mumia? Like, for real, like, right. it's, right. It, there's just so much that's coming out, um, you know, from, from folks who are um, inside. And I think that that's also a part of you know this entire it, it this wasn't simply just about giving people the right to vote. right mm-hmm. that this, right. these questions and this entire conversation, um we need to complicate our thinking about this and start peeling back the layers so that we can, you know respond to what um to what is what is being said in ways that I think um, push us in a different direction you know, and and move, moves the conversation forward rather than keeps us, you know, where uh, where we are and where we've been for such a long time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I could go yeah. on, but I won't. I have, you know, about a thousand- Me too.
2: I thought to about me. like 10 more things to say. Yeah, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we can have you back when the book comes yeah. out and, you know, you That's have great. a standing invitation to come on the show anytime you want. Um, yes. And certainly yeah, you yeah. and uh, Victoria. So we'd love to have you back when the book comes out, and we'll make sure that we get you know get a copy so that we can you know do do an episode on that as well. But I'm looking forward oh, to it. Thank you so much. Thank Same. you. Thank you so I much for that. coming on the show. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well,
2: you both are amazing. So I'm I'm grateful for what you're doing. Thank,
0: thank you. you. Thanks, Maya. Take care. Have a good you one. You Bye-bye. Bye.